Hey there, it's Jason, one of the members of the ENT in a Nutshell team, and I'd like to introduce a special episode we are publishing on our podcast series. COVID-19 has created a tremendous shift in how medical students will apply and interview for otolaryngology residency positions. Leaders in the Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery conducted a panel interview with residency program directors to discuss this very topic. With permission from the Academy, we have published the audio from this forum, which is published in video format online. We hope that adding it to the ENT in a Nutshell platform will aid in dissemination of this material. All right, I'm going to go ahead and get started. I see five o'clock. I just want to say thank you to my panelists. I know people are clicking in and joining from all over. I'm really excited to uh, introduce this topic. My name is Albert Marotti. I'm here from Seattle, Washington. I'm, uh, I'm here at the University of Washington. I'm an otolaryngologist, and I have the privilege of serving as the immediate past president of our National Academy of uh, the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. It's my privilege to introduce this wonderful team to you, which I'll do in just a minute. Um, I know you guys are just logging in, but uh, this is our really our first uh, medical student forum we're hosting in this in this forum in this format. It's the academy uh, joined with uh, other leaders from throughout otolaryngology from the uh, uh, otolaryngology program directors association (OPTO). It's part of the alphabet soup of our field. Um, so the Academy and Opto uh, came together to provide answers for what we sense to be a, a lot of questions out there regarding this year's match and the process of, of having our future otolaryngologists uh, find the ideal training for them, how this process is going to work uh, given the challenges related to COVID. Um, we are super interested in getting this right and fostering the discussion. The questions that um, our panelists are going to engage uh, with today came right from you, came right from a, the, in your responses to this survey. Uh, according to my latest count, we have nearly 500, excuse me, 450 folks uh, signed up to attend. So there's lots to cover, lots of years, um, I hope lots of answers, maybe some more questions. So we'll be doing all of that. And remember, the Academy is our, is, our, is our broad specialty organization, the largest organization of otolaryngologists in the world. We are absolutely Academy leadership. Membership is focused on attending to the needs and perspectives of our students. You will shape the Academy today, tomorrow, 10 years. So I'm glad you're on today. Please reach out through Ms. Swinehart and the rest of the Academy leadership team to join as a student member. I think the cost is, uh, it's, it's nominal, it's $25. Um, and uh, we would love to have you join and be a continuing voice. Speak up on the ENT Connect Forum, uh, which is a great forum uh, for our students to make sure we are hearing your perspectives and answering your questions or learning what we need to know. So given our COVID, uh, given the COVID pandemic and the challenges for visiting and interviewing, we've all become very Zoom familiar, uh, but what is it gonna mean for all of us as we move forward? Um, with uh, my great partner, Dr. Sonia Malexida, I've, we've gathered this terrific panel. I want to introduce you to them, and then we'll turn it over uh, for the questions. We'll start doing these questions. Uh, is everybody hearing me okay? Right on. Thank you. So uh, first is uh, my colleague, Dr. Rhonda Alexander, who's uh, faculty at uh, the McGovern Medical School in UT Houston. Uh, trained uh, originally at uh, Weill Cornell and Long Island Jewish, and then uh, then did her uh, otolaryngology residency at Einstein, and then further trained in laryngology at the Head Neck, in New York, uh, Head Neck Institute in New York City. Uh, 
Right on, Dr. Alexander. Dr. Tamara Chambers, I've gotten to know uh, a bit uh, and uh, on our uh, Academy Awards Task Force. Not the Academy Awards, but the Academy <laughs> Award Task Force. Dr. Chambers actually is located in Los Angeles where she is a program director at USC. Uh, big program there as well. She attended a medical school in, in UCLA, residency at USC, and then uh, fellowship there at Loma Linda and head neck surgery and runs the, the county, uh, uh, the medical, she's medical director there, I believe at the, at LA County, one of the biggest hospitals in the country. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Chambers. Dr. Chang, David Chang, I've known for a long time, was a medical student at KU and then uh, did his residency at, um, at Vanderbilt and then on to his training in facial plastics at Miami. He's now faculty at, um, at University of Missouri and is a uh, longtime contributor to our academy in, in, in many different committees, like a lot of our folks are. So thank you, Dr. Chang. Uh, then uh, last, uh, not last, but uh, next is Dr. Sonia Malexida, my partner, who is, uh, is representing, of course, uh, her program and perspectives from her uh, as a program director at um, Georgetown. She herself was originally trained at uh, George Washington University in town and then moved on to do her uh, training, resident training uh, up, this, up the road at uh, Maryland in, in Baltimore and um, now is back at the is back in Washington at Georgetown as the program director. Dr. Malexita also was elected as one of our national leaders as a, she's our senior at-large at director on the board of directors uh, responsible for executing the, the, uh, the, the strategic plan of, the, of our academy as a whole. So it's just been a treat to continue to work with her on the executive committee and this nice uh, bridge we have between Opto and, and the academy. Dr. Steve Pletcher, my neighbor uh, down the road in the Bay Area, is a professor of otolaryngology at UCSF and is director of the residency program there. Originally went to school at uh, a medical degree at also at UCLA and then completed training there at UCSF in rhinology out at the INR in Boston. And now is back running a, a terrific program there at UCSF. Last but not least, our colleague, Dr. Thorne from Michigan is a division chief of pediatric otolaryngology and, and professor there, is the otolaryngology residency program director, right? This is what all our folks have in common, including Dr. Alexander, I forgot to mention that part, and trained there originally at WashU, then at Michigan, um, and after getting having fellowship at CHOP, uh, came back to, to uh, Michigan and has been working there. I may have missed a few things and details, but I wanted to just tell you these program directors have committed a substantial part of their professional lives to doing their best for our incoming trainees, for the current trainees, and uh, really the future of otolaryngology. So thank you to each of you for this. Shall we get going with the questions? All right. My, uh, my first question I want to direct at my colleague, Dr. Malexida. So Dr. Malexida, what are the specific challenges, in your view, specific challenges for this year's season for recruitment, for matching? Thank you. First, Dr. Maradi, I want to <clears throat> take a moment and thank you on behalf of uh, Opto uh, for recognizing the concerns for our medical students during this really exceptionally stressful time um, and all the issues that are going on around COVID and really for being the mastermind behind this event. So thank you for proposing this. Um, and similarly, at Opto, we're appreciative of the Academy, the AOHNS, um, for um, sponsoring this, for supporting it, for hosting. Um, and I see Dr. Denaney on there. Thank you, Dr. Denaney, and thank you to Elise and all the staff for really putting all this together. So we are certainly grateful for that. 
Um, your question of specific challenge um, for this year's recruitment season. I think uh, first thing I'd say is that what we're experiencing in otolaryngology is really similar to what all the other medical and surgical specialties are facing during this time. We certainly are not unique. Um, everyone is tackling the same issues um, surrounding the impact of uh, COVID on medical education this upcoming recruitment season. I think if we step back to a little bit to the pre-COVID um, time, um, I think my colleagues on the call would agree that the residency selection process was imperfect. Um, there are many issues um, that we've been grappling with. Um, you know, one of the ones that we talk about often at our meetings is this increasing number um, of programs to which applicants are applying. Um, if I can share some statistics with you, in last year's application uh, season, ERAS published some statistics um, where they uh, had numbers that um, stated that applicants from U.S. medical schools applied to an average of 65 programs, and the international graduates actually had to apply to an average of 137 programs, and this is for all, across all specialties. Um, and so we all know that this certainly doesn't improve match rates for the medical students, and it really is just a burden. It's, you know, substantial cost to the applicants, and then as program directors, we just get this unmanageable number of applications to review. Um, and if we look more specifically at otolaryngology, Dr. Chang, who's on this panel, has published extensively on this um, topic, and he has a publication that's going to be coming out soon, but um, he's compiled some data. And last year's application season, applicants submitted an average of 72 applications, um, so that's an 80% rise over a 15-year span, um, and programs received well over 300 applications. So these are all sort of, you know, issues that have been brewing, um, and now we can expect with COVID this is going to get um, worse. Other issues I think we have to think about are USMLE um, scores. So testing centers um, have been closed across the country. Many of our applicants have been unable to take portions of um, their exam. Um, a lot of the medical schools have um, altered clerkships. You know, they've either had to shorten or replace them with virtual rotations. And then the way rotations, the way um, electives, the auditions, those are the ones that we rely on and the students um, rely on as experiences to get to know programs, but also it's an opportunity for them to get letters of recommendation and to also signal their interest in the program. So without all these opportunities, I think there's just general angst and uncertainty um, about how applications are going to be evaluated and how we're going to um, respond to a potential even increased number of applications. Um, I hate to start this out being the Debbie Downer, but those are the, the challenges. Um, but I will say that I think, you know, with any crisis, there's a saying, saying of crisis, within any crisis or chaos, there's opportunity. Um, and I think this perhaps is the time um, for us to reevaluate where we're doing this and to improve the process. I think a lot of what you said, Dr. Malexita, thank you, um, is going to be, there's, it's going to filter or mix in with each of the next, uh, the next four or five questions we're going to cover. So that was a good framework. Um, Dr. Pletcher, may I ask anything uh, just immediately strike you as something we want to make sure we get at as well that in Dr. Malexita's frame? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's important to um, to note that this is new for programs too. You know, a lot of the challenges that are different this year are things that we're uh, we're working through. And um, I would say that I think it's very clear from a program director standpoint that this is not a business as usual year, and the normal expectations about getting letters from uh, you know people at uh, at other institutions or having all your letters come from otolaryngologists or all those things I think are kind of out the door. Um, and, and so it's a, you know, it's a new, it's a new time. It's an opportunity, I think, as, uh, as Dr. Maluxa mentioned, to 
um, to really look at um, uh, different options that could improve our uh, our opportunities both this year and in the future. Um, I want to turn to Dr. Chang um, with that great framework. Thank you. Um, here's and this again. This came from our attendees. So. I'll just read it quickly. Without the opportunity, Dr. Chang, without the opportunity for away rotations, how can students demonstrate interest in a program? Great question. And I, again, I thank everybody who, uh, who's on. Uh, I know there's a lot of interested uh, students and applicants that are out there. So away rotations, unfortunately, um, aren't available, as everyone knows, this year. I think away rotations really serve uh, three main objectives. One, it's an educational opportunity for you as an applicant to kind of know and learn a little bit more about otolaryngology. Two, it's a, uh, it's a tryout. Uh, it's a way for you to kind of show off who you are and it's a sort of an early tryout or maybe you could look at it as a extended interview that you're having with uh, an, a, a program. Three, it's the other, it occurs the other way around as well too. So the programs are trying you out too and, and getting are spying on you, so to speak, to see if you would be a good fit as well. Um, so how are you to show interests in this environment? Well, you know, in a normal non-COVID uh, timeframe, you would only be able to probably do two, three, three max, maybe uh, uh, interview or um, away rotations. And so even at that, you'd only be signaling to potentially or, or showing interest to potentially three uh, places. Um, one way to show interest uh, in this new environment is that some of the in, uh, programs have decided to have um, uh, virtual sub eyes, and that's another way to kind of one get information, but also get your name out. Two, I think a lot of the uh, programs now are having um, town halls to to have uh, applicants learn a little bit more about otolaryngology, but also learn a little bit more about their program. And interacting in that fashion can be sort of a substitute. Do I think it's a perfect substitute? No, I don't think it's a perfect substitute, but it can be another way to kind of get out there. You know, there's always the tried, uh, or there's always the, the, the whole, the old way, the handshake or the phone call, uh, the emails. Um, and I think they are appreciated to some degree, but it, 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 I think that a lot of program directors do get inundated by a lot of phone calls and emails. And so it's, it's sometimes kind of hard for us as program directors to kind of exactly filter the meaning of of those um, those uh, overtures to us a little bit more. Um, you know, the OPDO, uh, Otolaryngology Program Directors Organization, has really been trying to brainstorm and think about how to improve the process a little bit more. And maybe some of the uh, you all out there have heard that we are sort of consider considering a signaling process. It's just a consideration at this time. We haven't really um, vetted it out completely, but we'll, know, we'll let you little, know a little bit more uh, if that comes to fruition. But there could be a, a signaling process that we might try to do to help applicants signal to programs interest in their, um, in their interview at those locations. Thank there you, was Dr. one question. Oh, there was yeah. one question. I see Tom Irwin had uh, sent a question to us. Our expectations this year for more applicants or fewer applicants. I think it's too early to say at this time uh, right now where that would occur. The numbers and data suggest we'll probably be somewhere in the same uh, as last year, I would imagine. But the number of applications per applicant, that might be a number that we might see tick up again. I wanna uh, thank you, Dr. Chang. Um, any of our panelists uh, would like to comment specifically on uh, 
Dr. Chang's answer or add to it or maybe even contrast? How people will manage the, the lack of away rotations. I think one other thing that um, you really hope to, to feel about when you want to know about a program is um, knowing the kind of the climate and the culture of that program. And so I think one thing you can also do is um, reach out to even the program coordinator and ask them if you can be connected with a resident or, you know, maybe even alumni so you can get more information and learn a little bit more about the culture in that way also. Is that a is that an opto? Is that something opto can do? I'm sorry, I'm ignorant. Uh, is that something? Is that a good reach, or should that be retail, like applicant directly to a program? Is there something? Is there a central version of that? I'm sorry. I don't know. Nothing like that exists within opto, so it's a direct communication. Okay, somebody's dog thinks is a good idea. Though. I just heard that. <laughs> okay, cool. Awesome. I have another question. I'm going to move on uh, to Dr. Thorne. Thank you, Dr. Thorne. Um, again, these are essentially direct quotes from our, our folks. These are the most common things we got respond, uh, the responses we got. So without array, away rotations, how are students um, going, going about getting letters of recommendation? Uh, I think you even touched on it. Who, what, where, when, and why? And maybe from the perspective, what is it if I can touch the third rail here, what is it that folks are looking for in a letter of recommendation? Maybe share, let's get behind the curtain a little bit. Yeah, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Al. I think this is a great question. Um, the, the short answer to some extent is I think the, the process for letters of recommendations will really largely be unchanged this year. And I, and I don't say that to you know, be a humbug or to try to sort of deceive you into thinking that it's not potentially more challenging. But, but really what you want to do is to uh, approach uh, faculty who can provide some personal insight uh, into your qualities as a candidate. Um, and another little tip uh, that I sort of provide is when you're, when you're approaching faculty, ask them if they feel like they can write you a strong uh, letter of recommendation. Um, that does two things. One, uh, most importantly, it kind of assures you uh, that you're going to get a letter and that's going to uh, really support you. It also gives the faculty an easy out uh, if for some reason they uh, haven't had the experience with you or um, uh, you know, don't feel comfortable writing a strong letter. Uh, it gives them an easy way to sort of decline um, so that you can make sure that your application really best reflects um, uh, you know, the, the qualities that you have as an applicant. I think one you know, big change that we'll, we'll probably see this year is that we'll expect as program directors to see more letters uh, from outside of our community of otolaryngologists. And we recognize that applicants won't be um, you know, able to do away rotations where they might uh, meet and interact with a larger number of faculty. So, um, so I think we'll welcome and we'll expect to see uh, letters from faculty outside of our specialty. Again, especially from faculty who can, um, you know, comment uh, personally about the skills that you uh, would bring to your training, would bring to your career as an laryngologist that might not be, um, you know, as evident um, from uh, just reviewing uh, your application. So, so I, I think you know that's that's who I'd be looking for um, if I were an applicant, and that's what I'm looking for as a program director are are letters that really speak to um, you know the qualities that an applicant has, and that I can't get by uh, looking at a transcript or uh, reviewing um, uh, you know their publications or uh, you know their um, 
their volunteer activities, those kind of things. I, I want to get to know, um, uh, you know, who the applicant is a person. Thank you, Dr. Thorne. Um, comments on that, you know, it, what do we do when folks are a little, a little out of reach? Uh, I don't know if we're going to be covering this in another question, but what about our amazing future laryngologists who don't have a, a home program, so to speak? Um, what, do, what do we do, guys? That's for all of you, by the way. Um, I, this is uh, Dr. Alexander. Hi, everybody, again. Um, wow, this is exciting. More than 200 of you here to listen to us. Um, I would say, if, yeah, so really, particularly this year, for people who don't have a home residency program, I think it is absolutely incumbent upon you to uh, help us by making that very clear. So I, if it were I, I would... Uh, mention it in my personal statement. Um, I think uh, we, a lot of us, I put a lot of focus on the personal statement. I read uh, every personal statement that I'm personally screening because I feel like that is your opportunity to tell me something uh, synthesized that is difficult to put in uh, into the boxes that are in the ERAS application. Um, and and it, when we're getting the, app, the number of applications that we do, it's hard for us to um, do the search and see if every every medical school has a program. If your school doesn't have a program, help us by just saying it. Um, and that's really going to just allow us to open the compassion gate to say, okay, well, this is somebody who we're going to um, look at um, and, and be able to accept those letters um, and, and kind of have a little bit more of an open mind. Not that we haven't already been, you know, looking for quality over uh, just brand names as it stands, but... Um, it does not hurt to help us help you. Right on. The compassion gate is generally open. Just maybe a compassion boost. <laughs> um, I, have before, I have a question for Dr. Chambers, but uh, one thing I, I just saw someone wrote in the chat, and this is my ignorance coming out. What's, are, are, we, are we doing individualized paragraphs? Is that gone? Uh, just teach me. I think that uh, maybe everyone knows but me. I'm sorry. I can talk to that a little bit. You know, I think that individual paragraphs um, are not mandatory as they were very much expected uh, in the past. Um, the ability to um, customize your personal statement has always been there, even before otolaryngology asked for this uh, paragraph. So feel free if you're an applicant, if you, if you need to or would like to highlight something more specific because you want to show that somehow that you're integrated to that program or have some insight into that program a little bit more, uh, help us see that aspect, like Rhonda had mentioned, um, so that we can see that through in your personal statement. So feel free to, to customize if you like. Excellent. Any other comments on that? And we just add to that. So, you know, feel free to customize if you like. And, and when there really are unique circumstances about your application to a specific program, uh, then there's real value. Uh, but know, um, you know, I want everybody to know that it is not required. Um, do not um, spend Agreed. significant right. time, um, uh, you know, for each program feeling like you have to put in, um, you know, something that is unique to the program. Excellent. I, uh, I would, I would just add on that too. I think it's also um, program dependent. So some programs may require it. So you just may want to look pretty carefully at the, at the programs to which you're applying. But yeah, it used to be mandatory years ago. And then now we've made it optional, but some programs still do want that. And 
you know, just look Dr. carefully. Thank you, Dr. Pletcher. Hang on, I want to make sure we understand. So you're saying that it should be clear to the applicant that that this a certain program they're interested has a requirement that should be clear to the applicant. They better good to double check that. And even if it isn't required, you have the freedom to do it. Thank you, Dr. Pletcher. Yeah, so I, I was going to echo what uh, um, what Dr. Melissa said. I think the, the number of programs that do require the paragraph is is very few. Um, so don't be surprised if you don't see that. The other thing I would say is that um, I would go a little further than Dr. Thorne and say, um, if you just regurgitate the some what's on the program's website in the pro, and add a program specific paragraph, it's probably even maybe even unfavorable. I would advise against that. Um, if you are doing it, you know, the only program specific paragraphs that I would say had the biggest impact were the ones that said at the end that were uh, applying to our program and said, and yes, and that's why I really want to come to UCSD. Um, so just, you know, those little kind of basics, I, make sure to, a great I program, great program, just the wrong, wrong paragraph for us. I could, as we transition to the next question, uh, when I was back at KU, uh, my, my first job at wonderful KU in Kansas City, um, the program the director, the, the coordinator came to me, said, check this out. And we had interviewed these wonderful doctors and, um, you know, Dr. Uh, Dr. Gerard, you know, thank you for this. Dr. Marathi, thank you for this, blah, blah, blah. And then she got a card and it was addressed to Dr. Bai, B-Y-E. And it was a serious letter. Like, thanks for your, thanks for your, you know, we're, I'm so interested in KU and this, that, and the other. And this person is wonderful, a laryngologist, maybe in the strain of the moment, had written Dr. Bai, like they had, there was a Bai on their schedule and couldn't remember that they didn't interview with anybody with that name. And I felt, we felt bad. I mean, it was like, you know, poor person was probably running around flying all over the place and event. Uh, so yeah, definitely pay attention to what you're sending to programs. So, uh, Dr. Chambers, I have a question for you, uh, uh, for all of us, but I'm going to start with you and your wisdom on this. Um, I don't know if we're looking for metrics or methodology, but at least the essence and maybe some of the specifics on this one. How will programs judge applicants from outside their programs fairly, right? The flip side of it. We've heard about how we're going to outreach and connect. As a program director, you look at this, how is it that you plan on reading these fairly when you don't have the personal moment, for better or worse? Big question. Right. And, and that's just a Oh, I lost the Dr. Chambers. Oh my, I just want to, I just want to jump in for, um, while we're having technical difficulties with Dr. Chambers, uh, dear candidates, when, when, not if, when you get your interviews, um, do everything in your power to be in a place where you have awesome internet when your interviews come up. Um, like, I expect there to be so much generosity um, when there is the actual interviews occurring, but um, do everything you can not to be in a car during your, um, during your interviews or, like, literally just, like, put fences around yourself as best as you can and be on the good, good Internet, um, even if that means plugging into a wall. Um, uh, we are trying not to give you any excuses to discount us, but please... <laughs> Give anybody else an excuse to discount you. Um, like go to the, go to the local library if that's the best internet you have. But um, set yourself up for success. Um, Dr. Chambers is um, in, on the West Coast and they are just getting done with work. So those of us on the East Coast are like, uh, well, what's wrong with them? It's late at night. No, it's not. It's daytime still. They're still in transit. So um, 
like just be conscious of time zones too, that not everybody is, it's going to be sunset uh, on the East Coast and it will be bright as day um, on the West Coast. So we, we all have to remember that this is not normal. Right on, right on. Let's, um, uh, and I know Dr. Chambers is going to get back on. Um, so how do we, again, methodology and the spirit, how do we judge people who we just have paper and, and uh, you know, that, that, that virtual interview? Maybe it's better. I don't know. Tell me, uh, uh, join in, Dr. Uh, Dr. Chang. What do you think? I, yeah, I, that is so hard. I think that is the challenge of being a program director and selecting applicants. I mean, we have this sea of great applicants every year. And I think as otolaryngology, we are very blessed that we have a lot of high quality applicants that are out there. And how do we distinguish them uh, all? I think that's very hard. Yes, we have our biases, whether it's a regional bias, uh, whether it is an institutional bias. But I think that realize that you know, a lot of places, uh, a lot of programs match well outside of their own institution. We're not all, um, you know, inbred kind of institutions. And so we're looking to diversify. Uh, I think that we've learned several lessons perhaps in the past that it's not all about, it's definitely not all about a metric. I don't think it, that one metric defines a person. It's not the USMLE score. It's not your uh, AOA. It's not your gestured letters of recommendation. It's a whole conglomerate of things. And we've really tried through the OPDO um, to stress that a holistic evaluation as much as possible is what we really need to try to achieve in order to diversify our, our uh, resident body and also diverse, diversify our own programs. Excellent. Any, any specifics? Is anybody, uh, is anybody using... Um a formalized methodology. I know what we do here at UW, um, but. Um, my team and I, um, I, I did the first draft and then we kind of worked it out over the past couple of years where we identified, um, and this is the hard work that many programs are going to have to do over the coming years, is we identified traits and qualities that we want in our residents and then correlated them to activities that we think represent those characteristics and qualities, and so those are, those are things that we're looking for in the application. Now, that requires a lot of work, uh, and so that is hours and hours, and it involves me giving each of my faculty volunteers no more than about 15 applications to read, right. while I have like 40 <laughs> to read, because I, I, I take that burden, because I want them to do a good job, and so I don't want to overburden them so they feel like they have to go fast. Um, but um, you'd be surprised at the things that different programs are valuing. So um, some programs are looking for the AOA. Other programs are looking for, have you had a full-time job? Um, some programs are looking for, did you play a musical instrument uh, as a measure of dexterity? Other programs are looking at, uh, did you lead any significant movements or organizations on your campus? Uh, and were you able to call resources or pull resources together to create um, positive change in your environment. So whatever your whatever is inside you often has come out of you in terms of the things that you're doing, not just grades and not just test scores. And so I would encourage every every candidate applicant to make sure that you're putting things first of all in the right place. If it is volunteer activity, please do not put it under an employment. It is not. And if it is employment, please do not put it under volunteer or community service. Put it in the right place. Uh, because uh, being careless about that um, 
is an opportunity for somebody to think that you're sloppy and careless and don't pay attention to details when that's not what you really mean. Thank you, Dr. Alexander. Dr. Chambers, thank you for clicking back on. Um, uh, uh, just, did you want um, anything to add about uh, maybe methodology or the essence of how we evaluate folks when we're not seeing them in person? Oh, drop back off. So I'm sorry about that. Let me go to another, uh, let me go to another thing. Um, I thought there was a very compelling question that came up in the chat. It's pretty broad. It's not necessarily unique to this year, but it's important to this class. What are the recommendations? I might start with Dr. Thorne on this. What are your recommendations for someone who came to otolaryngology late and is trying to make up a lot of ground? Yeah, thanks. Oh, it's a great question and, and one that uh, I think a lot of students who um, uh, sort of decide on our field late um, are concerned about. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll give my end of one opinion and others can kind of jump in because I actually don't worry uh, very much about this uh, from an applicant perspective. Um, you know, I have no real concerns that our applicants are um, choosing uh, to enter the field of otolaryngology on a whim. Um, and so if they've made that decision, um, then I certainly trust that they're committed to our field and are, are going to be interested and engaged. Um, really what I'm looking for is that um, the applicants have uh, taken advantage of the opportunities that they've had uh, throughout their training um, so that they've demonstrated that they um, uh, you know sort of excel uh, in an academic and a clinical environment that they have uh, identified things that they are interested and passionate about and, and done work uh, in those areas uh, and so what they can do uh, you know when you've uh, kind of identified it late is just to take maximal advantage of the time that you have um, so uh, build connections um, with, uh, with the department or with mentors uh, that are available to you. Uh, if you have uh, specific areas of interest and you have the time, uh, then explore those further um, so that you can, uh, as you get your interviews and are able to, um, uh, to meet with faculty, that you can speak intelligently about uh, what it is that you're passionate about and how you contribute to our field. Right on. Comments on that from the team? Thank you. I think that's I think that's great advice, and yes. uh, and I think that um, you know you can also identify skills that you've built in whatever you've been doing so far um, in your you know kind of in your training career, and how those skills will translate into an otolaryngology environment. Um, and I think being able to um, you know identify that and articulate that really kind of negates the concern that oh this person came late or this person doesn't really know what they're you know what their skills are because you've developed the you've developed um, you know you you've developed yourself and now you just need to show how it applies to our field. Right on. Um, I want to move on to another question and by the way for the panelists you know uh, there are some neat questions in the Q&A uh, I encourage you to feel free to throw your thoughts in there if you like I'm trying to with your help trying to pick a few to bring to the team but if, if you want to go retail I think that's helpful. Um, for Dr. Alexander, and I will also ask Dr. Chambers to comment on this, how are program directors, that's you guys, combat the, um, some, of the, some of the local bias of the familiarity? How do we combat the inherent bias that will come from this cycle because of the lack of absence, of the lack of that, that in-person connection of those visits? It's sort of another version of this same question. How do we combat the bias to get to, to seek students who are just particularly well-known to their own program? Dr. Alexander, then Dr. Chambers. Well, I would offer you the encouragement that first of all, better known does not always mean better positioned. <laughs> right? 
So just because someone is uh, well-known at their program, uh, you don't know whether they're famous or infamous. And so I would not begin this process by assuming that you're at a disadvantage um, by not being able to physically visit the program. So let's, let's just take that thought and throw it away immediately um, so that we can go into this with positivity. Um, this is a whole new horizon that all of us are looking at, okay? And so um, that you can combat that bias again, uh, I think particularly by uh, making sure that you are bringing out the traits that are going to make you an awesome physician and otolaryngologist, right? So um, I feel like I'm, I'm giving out cheat codes for Super Mario Kart here, but are you a gold star Girl Scout? Did, are, did you win your, you know, your Eagle Scout award? Did you did you build a thing from scratch? Uh, did you organize a um, a cooperative thing? Um, so don't assume that the bias is in favor of the um, native to the school students, and um, really work on your application and putting your best foot forward because I, with this situation that we're in, the in-depth reading of applications is I expect it to go up this year. I, th I expect there to be much more careful combing uh, that is not focused on simply numbers. And so um, I hope that answers your question, and I really hope it's an encouragement to you as well. Very helpful. I saw a lot of nodding heads. And uh, Dr. Chambers, uh, I thank you for sticking with us. I know you had some audio. Um, any thoughts on that, on, uh, on Dr. Alexander's comments? Yeah, I completely agree. I'm just, you know, like she mentioned, it can be infamous or, you know, famous or infamous. And, you know, there is an advantage to having um, been able to do a rotation at your home institution. But, you know, it could also be a disadvantage. Um, you know, some, some, you know, medical students that are rotating may not have seen their program in all of their colors, you know, um, given COVID time. So they may, you know, have decided that maybe it's not the right fit for them or their personal missions and goals are no longer aligned with that of the institution. So, you know, things change and, and just because they rotate at that home institution doesn't mean it's going to fit. Um, at USC, we're also seeing a lot of students that have deferred from applying this year because of the uncertainty of COVID. So it's also possible that there are not enough applicants that have actually, um, you know, decided to apply for the number of spots that that institution has. So that should also be some solace to people. Um, from a sub-I perspective, I also think that, um, you know, I think it levels the playing field. I think that if we had all had the opportunity to uh, you know, backpack across America and visit every single otolaryngology had a neck surgery program, we would all want to do that. But, you know, given time and, and limited resources, many people have not been able to do that. Maybe you have one rotation that conflicts with another or, you know, your timing or um, whatever it was. And I think that, you know, not being able to do sub-ice this year actually levels the playing field in a lot of ways so that everybody has an equal opportunity uh, despite their, you know, limited resources or time so that we get a, a you know, an assessment of everybody despite where they're coming from. Wow, that was great. That was great. I'm going to stick with Dr. Chambers for a second. Um, one of the other questions from the app, from, from the, the, our attendees was, um, and from your sense, what are there aspects of the actual application that will be more, um, more maybe not scrutinized, but maybe emphasized this year to contrast this year from prior years? Dr. Alexander suggested that, that we're going to sense, sense that there's going to be more scrutiny, more thought put into it, not just USMLE score, which school, which letters, you know, do you have a sense of what those things might be? 
I think you have to think about it holistically. I mean, you know, the same way as we approach medicine, it's not just, you know, treat a number, treat a value. I think that, you know, the applicant that you're looking for matches with the ideals and the values and the culture and the mission of that institution. And so if you, if you feel that certain way or you feel that you're a good fit for that, I think that you should express that in your personal statement. Um, and I think that it's the conglomerate of all of the things. It's the, you know, it is the scores. It is the personal statement. It is the activities. And it's all of that of who you are and what type of individual is going to be able to come to a program and thrive in, you know, in that residency program. That's who we want. We want somebody not just who, who you know, who matches, you know, remember the matches. A, it's a real marriage. It's, it's five years, five to life for some of us. And and you really want to, you know, find a place where not only is that place, you know, a good fit for you and you're a good fit for them. So I think that it's the conglomerate of all of the things that you're going to fit into their family. Right on. Wow. That was great. Um, thank you so much. I have a question. It's a bit of a, is a little, uh, not nitty gritty, but very detailed. Uh, I'm going to turn uh, to, um, to Dr. Thorne. Can you update us uh, from program director's perspective, your thoughts about um, how will steps, uh, step two CK scores factor in the application review process? Yeah, yeah. so I'll, I'll, again, I'll answer briefly because I'll be interested to hear what others have to say because um, uh, I think it may vary. Uh, speaking for our program, uh, we really have no uh, cutoffs for any of the step scores and, and no real you know, sort of expectations to see the, C uh, the CK scores. Um, in general, step scores are really pretty poor predictors, uh, except at the lowest margin, uh, where there's some risk of, uh, you know, failure of future standardized tests. Um, so, uh, you know, my general advice is, um, if you're confident that you'll do better on your step two scores, then um, uh, go ahead and, and take them. Um, but uh, especially if your step one score is low, but if not, I would say to the applicants, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, we understand that um, there's significant disruption in the ability to um, uh, take uh, some of these step exams, and um, I won't be expecting to see them necessarily. They also don't, they just don't help me very much. What do you guys think about that? You know, I think that every institution has figured out there may be their own algorithmic process. Uh, some people wait, uh, oh, we'll give so many points to the step one exam. So we have so many points to the um, letters of recommendation. That is not a universal process and everyone has a different algorithmic process. So there could be some institutions that are out there that put a certain weight to each of those examination scores. Uh, and so it's really difficult to say, but like Dr. Thorne said, I think we made a big hubbaloo about just um, step scores in general and made too much of a big deal about the fact that they really are in the end not a great predictor as Dr. Thorne had mentioned about the success of a resident and and that you residents or applicants you're more than just that number that you've been assigned uh, to and uh, that step score at least here at the University of Missouri I don't use an algorithm I believe that you know if, if you had an algorithm, then the great accomplishment that you might have had if you went to Kenya and um, started a mission program there couldn't outcompensate for if I weighted the step one score too high. So we try to look as much as holistically as possible without pigeonholing what we specifically preference, because I just feel like we don't want to have a cookie cutter residency. Right on. Any other comments? That was an important area. 
I would echo those thoughts too. Uh, you know, I think um, we know that they're not predictors of how you're going to be as a resident or how you're going to be as a physician, these scores. And I think more and more programs are putting less emphasis on it. Um, so it, it's, I, I think it's going to be less looked at uh, moving forward. It is hard to, you know, the, the science of it, you know, is being better understood. In this fantasy, all things being equal, would it be nice to have somebody who did well on this one semi-universal, however imperfect thing? You know, it's just never really equal, right? I mean, that's, that's the issue. It's just very, it's, I think people have historically put too much weight into it, it seems. You can be book smart, but you may not be people smart. You know, you may yeah, have great uh, knowledge, but you don't know how to operate in a, um, in a, a hospital environment. So yeah, we're looking yeah. for all those qualities, not just your number. Yep. Yep. Um, Dr. Matsuda, I have you down uh, for my point person for the next question. This has been sprinkled into the conversation in several ways. So specifically, how can students learn about specific programs? What would advice you'd be, would you give? We're hearing about these um, webinars and things like that. Um, how, do, how do students figure this out? What's, what's your best advice? So I think the students are probably much more savvy than we are as uh, old program directors. And, and um, they have done a great job of you know, creating uh, Twitter um, conversations and things going on social media. But similarly, you know, programs are also having to beef that side of their, um, their portfolio up because we don't have the opportunity to woo you on a way rotation, have you come to our program to show you what we're about. You, you can't get a sense of what our culture is in person. So um, I think programs are really putting a lot of effort um, into their websites, into their social media presence. Um, many programs are doing virtual sub-eyes or virtual Q&As, virtual opportunities to meet residents. Um, so I encourage the students to take advantage of that. Um, I also worry a little bit that it becomes overwhelming and I worry about the well-being of the students because I see some of my students are panicked. You know, I can't make it to all of these um, virtual events, you know, they're on rotation, so their time is also limited. Um, I would tell you not to worry too much. I don't think programs are really keeping track of who is joining and who's not joining. I think that's one of the concerns that one of some of our students had is, um, you know, if I don't sign up and they don't see me, you know, on one of their virtual events, they're going to think that I'm not interested in their program. Uh, you know, I don't think that's the case for the majority of, of programs out there. Um, but it's just finding all these opportunities, these virtual opportunities. Um, and I'm open to emails from students. I've received quite a few. I've had a couple conversations. Um, so I think I can't speak for all program directors. I think most would also uh, welcome those and I'm happy to talk to you if you have any specific questions about the program. So um, I think this is a time where we need to, you know, think outside the box and communicate and, you know, put yourself out there. I, I, I'm going to uh, jump in here as a, just as a, yeah the fifth beetle here, that's eighth beetle, whatever it is. But, um, you know, I, uh, having done this for a while, I do wonder, you know, what has gone into my head and my desire uh, to advise uh, students interested in otolaryngology, you know, hey, I'm Dr. Brady, I'm interested in otolaryngology, where should I apply, right? So what do I think of instantly? And the point of this to our attendees is understand yourself we're all growing up, I'm at 54 and I'm still trying to figure it out. Understand yourself, what is it that really is you wanted? Because there is a, there is some conflict in here or, or, or uh, there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes that happens between what it is 
you believe, what it is you're surrounded by, what it is you want off in the future. And it doesn't always go, people aren't being evil, but when, when the people give you advice about where to go and apply, do your best to make sure you have a very candid conversation with them in, in that relationship, the best you can about, you know, you, it's your life. What is it that you want? And make sure that that, that faculty member or that advisor, maybe it's a wonderful person in private practice who's got a great broad wisdom about the field, but what that they understand you and they can help you give their best advice. And even if it's unintentional, that's not about them, but it's about you. Because I think students, I sense that students deal with this a fair bit. There isn't evil necessarily, I'm probably some bad actors, but people <laughs> really want to give good advice, but they're, they're, what they want comes so, it just is, comes out in their advice so much and just make sure they're tuned into your radio station and not the other way around, so. Big speech there, sorry. I get to do one every now and then, so. Uh, moving on with the questions. So thanks guys, you guys are doing great. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff in the chat. I know, feel free to pick some of these. We'll do the q and I wanna just get on the last couple questions. Um, uh, how are specific, uh, Dr. Alexander, can you tag on to Dr. Malexa's answer? Um, we've talked about the mechanics of the connections. What about the essence of the under, understanding the programs? How are programs that you've seen colleagues around the country displaying or sharing the essence of their, who they are um, uh, in this day and age when we can't have people visit? What would you advise? What, you, what are you doing? Tell me more about that, conveying the essence of the program. Dr. Alexander, yes. Okay, I go first. Okay, I just, I just naturally defer to Dr. Malexida because I admire her so much. Um, <laughs> she's amazing. Um, I, I say, um, this is, my personal philosophy is reveal your inner dork. And so uh, the programs that like, oh, Learnology is cool, but we also are not cool, okay? <laughs> um, so realize cool in the very, very niche ways. And so I, I know that my institution is already been on top of this, and they're creating a video that is about Houston and our hospital systems where our, our, our residents work, um, so that it would give kind of like the big framework. And then we were already working for a couple of years on a uh, publishable YouTube-type video that was going to be about our program. Um, uh, that certainly timeline has moved up. Um, but I think that the, at the very least, like not every program has people who um, really know how to work, even just iMovie. And so uh, please be gentle with us. Um, I, one of the opportunities that is going to be essential, uh, just like on interview day when you have unsupervised time with the residents and you see how they interact and also how they, uh, what they have to say spontaneously when the faculty is not around, uh, Pretty much every program is going to give you some opportunity to um, have an online environment with the residents that faculty will not be allowed to attend. Um, I think that's, that's very important to me that I not be present uh, to supervise or kind of guide or bend in any way just by my presence. Uh, and so um, uh, even if it's uh, something very primitive like a Google Hangout, please be gentle on the programs because like a lot of us are just doing our best. and. Um, not to uh, not to you know cry for ourselves, but uh, some of this is uncompensated labor. 
you all know what that means, that um, this is not, uh, whatever percentage of our job is dedicated as non-clinical so that we can be program director and that our staff can do this, it, it, we, we work outside of that. Um, and nobody becomes pro program director really just for the power. It's because we care about curating our program's future. Um, and so if all we can do is set up a, a kind of, you know, a Google Hangout online, please just go to it and, and talk with the residents and really ask them the questions you think you shouldn't um, because we're, we're going to be creating confidential environments for you to get that information um, and, you know, see if the residents make fun of each other because, like, we only make fun of the ones we love, right? So that's one way that we are planning on doing that is like creating an online environment where you can interact faculty-free, separate possibly even from the interview day so that it's not in, wrapped up in the stress and emotion of sitting on your couch in your uh, suit top and casual bottom, which we know you're going to do. Excellent. Comments on that from the team before we go to Dr. Pletcher for the next question? It's a great just example. A, just a second that the, you know, having time uh, with the residents will be the most critical. Uh, you know, I'm sure we will also, you know, uh, the institution is putting together a video and, uh, and we'll do our best, um, as meager as it might be, to try to uh, help the applicants kind of understand what we're about as a program. But the most meaningful thing has always been and will be this year, uh, the opportunity to kind of interact with the residents. Um, I always uh, tell our interviewees on our interview day, I, I give them my uh, sort of program director picture. Uh, and then I say, but the most important thing is I'll, I'll let you talk to the residents and you can find out uh, this is how I think the program is, but they'll tell you how it really is. Awesome. Dr. Pletcher, um, using your own wonderful program as an example, and maybe what you've heard from your colleagues, your peers, um, what, uh, how are you changing your interview strategy? A little bit about format maybe, and then about, you know, what is it you want to get at with folks when you're talking to them like this? Yeah, thanks. That's a, it's a great question. And it's something that um, we're honestly still continuing to work through and, and plan this year. I think it's one of the things about this year that will absolutely be different. Um, our typical format uh, is to have uh, about 20 applicants uh, come in for a day. We split them up into two groups of 10. Uh, they do a tour with the residents um, for uh, 10 of them do a tour with the residents for half of the day while the other 10 are interviewing, and then they switch uh, for the second half of the day and then have an evening social event. So it gives them time to spend individual time with the residents and things. Um, the, uh, in order to, so in order to, to change that for this year, you know, I think you can go any, anywhere from, a, from switching to a, uh, to a virtual model that um, basically tries to emulate that completely. Um, you know, you could, in theory, have an applicant um, on a computer screen in each, room, in each room and just have the uh, faculty rotate room to room and do the same thing, exact same thing. Um, that is uh, not what we're going to do. Um, I think that would be just a little overwhelming on the Zoom factor um, and uh, would, be, uh, would, be, would do a disservice, particularly to those who were later in the day. Um, I think that we're going to look at, at likely having um, a, some larger uh, panel interviews. Um, you know, I think that there's uh, in a um, uh, in the setting in a in a person in a face-to-face -face setting. I think panels uh, can be um, somewhat intimidating. Um, I hope on the Zoom setting we can uh, arrange it in a way that allows um, some individual conversations with um, with other with uh, with applicants um, while other faculty can um, can simply glean the answers. I think one of the potential benefits is that 
Um, I think all of us remember and all of us recognize that as applicants go throughout their interview day, they get asked the same question uh, probably 10 times. You know, how many times do you have to answer where I want to be in 10 years or why did I choose otolaryngology? Um, so with a larger panel, hopefully that will be able to kind of compress that um, and make that, that time a little more efficient. Um, so we, the other thing that we're doing is you know, we have a group of chief residents who are interviewing for fellowships right now, and we have a group of um, fellowship directors who are interviewing applicants for fellowships, um, and that's all happening virtually. So we have a upcoming meeting in the next couple of weeks uh, where we're going to sit down with that group of folks and just kind of review their experiences of what that's been like um, and really try to devise a system that takes the best from those, uh, from those opportunities and creates an opportunity to really connect individually with applicants um, on the, during that actual interview time, um, a, a uh, really dedicated time for applicants to spend time with individual uh, residents to get a sense of the culture. Um, we may have some, uh, some video tours, uh, maybe some folks uh, at some of our local coffee shops uh, commenting on how delicious the various items are there. Um, who knows, uh, that's all, all to be developed, but um, you know, it's, uh, it's a little tricky to kind of horseshoe things around and make it all work out, but we're gonna do our best. And you know, we're, we're working on the, um, you know, we're working on the format and, 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 um, and I think that it's, you know, it's an opportunity to innovate um, and, uh, and we'll, see, uh, we'll see what we can come up with. Sounds right. So yeah, that's a real structure consideration because of the Zoom fatigue uh, and, um, and really just, you know, making sure everyone gets, gets a chance to connect. I didn't hear a lot other than the continued emphasis on resident contact. I didn't hear a lot that the actual conversation will be that different. Is that fair? Like what, I mean, the same stuff we're going to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think that's fair to say that a lot of the, that, um, that the same, I think there will be less repetition of the same content, um, but the similar themes, you know, um, I think that there's a, uh, there's uh, all interviewers, interviews are an opportunity to um, make that uh, interpersonal connection, uh, to, uh, to have that kind of uh, communication um, uh, experience and, and really to try to get a sense um, for, uh, for how people present themselves and um, and at, on the applicant side, I think of it a little bit like your personal statement where there's a, you know, it's the sort of a free flowing opportunity to express yourself and you can do it within, within specific questions or, you know, there's also time to, um, to really describe the, the, the core things that are important to you and, um, and what you're, you know, what you're looking to, uh, what you're really looking, how you can um, apply that uh, in the setting of the program where you're interviewing. Um, and so the ability to make that all happen, you know, is, uh, is going to be different. Um, but I think the actual content of the conversations will likely be similar. I appreciate that. Uh, panelists, any uh, structural or, or essence comments about the interview process this year? Maybe your own examples. The one thing I want to hammer home is that this is new for us, just as it is for the resident, for the applicant. So we're trying to figure this out. Um, so be patient with us, as Rhonda had mentioned. Excellent, excellent, good. Um, one of the questions that came up um, that, that several times in the in the Q and A had to do with the impact of COVID on investigational work. You know, the students have a zeal for investigation. To be frank, they they recognize the, the, the energy that goes into this consideration for application processes. Um, you know, and they may, their, their, their papers may have been thwarted or slowed down, you know, as their, as their uh, mentors have, the labs have been limited. 
Um, what are your thoughts? How will that, are these going to be, are people going to recognize that, that they may not have banged out this or that or the other? Can we reassure folks? You know, I think that the COVID climate has actually um, changed opportunities a little bit differently. While your traditional um, research opportunities might have been stymied and those labs have been closed, there's actually been a huge, huge surge of COVID-related literature that's been published out there. <clears throat> a lot of it tends to be commentary, a lot of it tends to be opinion type of pieces, but if you can jump in on those, those have been uh, prolifically written in the last uh, few months. Uh, and uh, also patient safety type of articles or how I do it articles or how is my institution handling this or how is your institution handling that. I think there's some opportunities that you could uh, potentially try to uh, gain or exploit or, or, or grab onto uh, given the COVID pandemic that's out there. Excellent. Well, lemons, lemonade out of lemons. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. I definitely uh, feel for our folks. Um, any other comments on that team? Dr. Alexander, yeah, that was um, the original raise hand function. I'm like, <laughs> I am that kid at, in school who just kept their hand up until the teacher called on them. <laughs> so, um, I also, for, for, because your COSM presentation, your podium presentation was canceled, put that. Say, Tyler presentation planned for COSM, canceled due to COVID. Don't leave it off just because it wasn't the same. Uh, same for your posters. If it was accepted, that means that our um, community believed that it was important. And so push that forward again. Again, don't, don't hide uh, things that you actually accomplished during this very, very challenging time. And we lived through it too. And so I think we're not, we're not looking for um, anyone to have you know, individually cured cancer this year. <laughs> I have a question that uh, I, think, I think it's a good question. Uh, came in from the Q&A, lots of them are good questions. I just think this will be broad. Do you recommend sending emails presenting interest in the program to program directors at this point? Uh, this, this attendee wanted to, uh, I want to reach out to places I wanted to rotate, but have felt silly saying, I'm interested in such a because of this, that, and this, and I wanted to let you know. Um, again, we heard that there's a real discussion about signaling happening. We're not there yet, as if that's fair to say. Now, this attendee is asking, do you recommend specifically sending emails to program? Is that a way of doing it? Is that a good or bad idea? Tell me your thoughts. Uh, Dr. Chambers, why don't we start with you if you're available? Yeah, I mean, you have to be careful. Um, you know, you don't want to spend all day and all night sending a gazillion emails to everybody. But if there are particular programs that you feel are very, very well aligned with your mission, your personal beliefs and values, um, or you have particular questions or you want to speak to, as I mentioned before, one of their residents or one of their alumni, I think that that's appropriate. But I, I definitely, you know, I, I don't want all the medical students to spend all night tonight sending an email to every single program director saying, just so you know, I really wanted to come to see you, but, I, you know, it didn't work out because of COVID. So I think we have to be careful with that. But, um, but if there is some particular interest or you are particularly, you know, keenly aligned with their mission, their values, you think that you're going to be a great fit, um, then yeah, I would encourage that. Excellent. Comments on that? I think it's a good idea to hold off on that for just a little bit. You know, the, everything, the timeline of everything has been pushed back this year. Um, I do think it would be, it will be influenced by the signaling situation overall. Um, and, uh, and I think it's also an opportunity 
to uh, potentially engage your mentors to advocate for you, um, depending on the timing and how things work out. So um, I don't know that now is the best time for that. You know, it, the, the decisions for interviews aren't going to be happening until um, uh, until uh, after you know late October at the earliest. So an, in, an inbox message that comes now, I think, is likely to be lost. I think it'll have more impact um, later, and it may be you know kind of replaced uh, largely by this signaling opportunity, depending on how things work out. Any uh, alternative opinions there? Everyone agree with that? I have, a, I have a question. I may be sticking my finger in the light socket on this one. Um, I don't know the details, but um, one of the attendees asked about the, the much discussed decision for USMLE step one to go to pass fail. I think, isn't that, a, that's a year from now, is that right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, again, there are there are third year students on here. I don't know if it's going to apply to them. I'm sorry if I'm missing a fundamental fact, but I think it's of interest to lots of people. Do you mind spending a minute on that? What your thoughts about not may I suggest not about it's good or bad idea, but about what it matters to our future otolaryngologists and this process. Dr. Uh, Chang or Dr. Thorne, we haven't heard of you for a moment. I'll, I'll chime in just a little bit and I'll give Dr. Thorne uh, the platform afterwards. But I think that from a resident's perspective, um, it is going to incur, or from an applicant's perspective, it's going to encourage us as programs to look more holistically. No longer can we utilize or even attempt to utilize step one as this weird metric uh, to screen with. And so I think it would be of you know, some benefit to look at our applicants more holistically and give that equal opportunity out to more people. Yes, you're gonna say, well, it's harder for me to distinguish myself, but we're also looking for other distinguishing factors. It's not just that score again. Mark, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, I think it's long overdue. I, I think it's, uh, it's a, a <clears throat> very imperfect measure um, that is used in even more imperfect ways, uh, typically. Um, and uh, we know there are um, sort of systematic uh, differences in performance uh, based on factors that have nothing to do with how you will achieve as an otolaryngologist. So, um, you know, the, the challenge is, you know, for programs, it does uh, require um, them to dig into the applications uh, a little bit more in order to really get a sense of who people are as an applicant. Uh, I think there's certainly opportunities for medical schools to um, come together and try to provide uh, more uh, standardized information about all of the students so that we can have, you know, kind of more clear comparisons. But um, just as far as, as the impact of losing that step one score, um, you know, I think it's um, long been coming and, and I'm happy to see it. Any comments on that specifically? That was well covered. Dr. Alexander, we had a comment, excuse me, we had a question about the couples match. Um, did you have a comment on that? We're not hearing you. Oh my gosh, rookie mistake, sorry. Um, <laughs> I answered it in the Q&A, but I thought many more of you might benefit from it. Um, couples match is always fraught when you're in a competitive specialty. Um, and this person wants to know, you know, when do I reach out and do I reach out to everyone? You know, as mentioned just now, reaching out to everyone kind of becomes like reaching out to no one um, because it just becomes, you know, another barrier that everybody's going over. Um, and PDs are, we are suffering with our email boxes, okay? Um, but if you are trying to couples match, 
think about the timeline. So your application has to be released to the program, right? They have to know that it has to exist. Um, and then if you are, are both going to be, uh, if you both have programs at a certain location, it is to your advantage to try to signal yourself, whether we have our official signaling system up yet or not, to programs that have the opportunity for both of you. So um, I would recommend being selective about to whom you're emailing. Um, but please wait until your application is actually in, because if the email comes in 10 days before applications are open, it is very difficult for the program director to then filter back and see what, per, what who that person was right after we then open up our inbox and have our 400 applications or X number of applications. So please um, be aware of that timeline and also as a couple look at programs where you're statistically more likely to match. So focus on cities that have both programs and often multiple copies of both programs as opposed to um, communities that don't where um, that's not likely where you're going to couples match anyway. Thank you, Dr. Alexander. I just saw one other question. I want to go around the uh, around the Zoom, so to speak, trademark, um, about uh, some of the uh, last thoughts. One of the um, attendees uh, asked for a, a really interesting question is, uh, how do you expect the number of interview invites offered by programs to change this year when the interviews are not limited by travel? I'm guessing a lot of it has to do with faculty not seeing patients uh, is going to limit a lot of that. But are we going to do more? Are we going to do less? I mean, wh what are your thoughts? So we just had that conversation today um, with my department chair. You know, and we have two interview days. This is what we do at Georgetown. Um, we have a full day of, you know, two, two separate individual interview days. Um, but we're thinking about adding a third day this year because we haven't had sub-eyes. And so typically the sub-eyes are in our pool. Um, so we don't have that opportunity to have them in our program. So this is, you know, a chance for us to maybe have a third day and that way we can capture more folks. Um, I don't know if other, you know, program directors are thinking the same thing. Does that sound about right, guys? What do you think? More or less the same? I don't know. I think it depends upon where you've matched in the past as a, as a program and how many how many people that you feel like you need to get through to do that. This, uh, this year would provide the opportunity for programs to interview more, but if they typically, you know, if the programs typically match high up in their list anyway, there's no need for them to match more or to, to interview more. Uh, and so I think here at the University of Missouri, we'll probably be to do that. To do about the same. I'd be fearful. I'd be like, God, I don't, there's some uncertainty this year, right? That's our feeling. I don't know. My brain gets what you're saying. My heart wonders, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Any other comments before we go around to wrap it up? I know we. Yeah, I know I'm, I'm always fearful, but but I think we should try. And, you know, my, my plan is not to interview anymore. Um, and I think in general, as programs, we should try to not increase um, uh, the number of uh, applicants that we interview, uh, because then I think it just uh, puts more burden on our students, and it probably is there to allay our fear uh, and not as a, sure. as a way of, of better. Um, you know, evaluating a, a pool. Um, but so, uh, but having said that, the full disclosure is that I was going to interview less this year, and, and I'm going to interview the same number that I've been interviewing. So, <laughs> so I'm sort of interviewing more, even as, as I say that. Excellent. And um, just a note to us PDs from the from the chat. Um, it was regarding the open houses being on weekdays and that making it very difficult for them to. Sorry. 
making it difficult for them to attend, um, making sure that the interview, like when you, in the old days when you flew out to your interview, everybody knew why you weren't there, but it's harder to sneak away for a half day of interviews while you're on a clinical rotation if you don't really have the day away. So um, I think it's important for the medical schools and the home departments to create safety for the candidates around needing to go to their interview days because it's going to be it, – it looks – it's just like the fellows who are interviewing. It looks weird when people see you, but you're not taking care of patients. But you're like, no, I'm interviewing today. I'm just – you know, I'm doing a physiology break, but it doesn't mean that I'm not working at my interviews. So um, – uh, interviews are they, some some programs may interview on the weekend, but that's probably the programs that used to interview on the weekend anyway. I think it's probably a good education opportunity for the uh, for whether it's Opto, this wonderful group, or maybe the SUO, the Society of Eastern Learning College, maybe just to remind the faculty that have been around for a while but maybe aren't the program directors, right, the dinosaurs, etc., that that things are different this year. That our our wonderful students need to step away from their case you know i don't want to take away from the clinical education but step away from your clinic for a moment if they have something to do because you're right it's it's a bit of a it's a devilish detail that when they're gone you know they're gone on a trip but when they're they were there a minute ago you wonder where did that guy go you know so <laughs> i think that's an education point we can we can we can go by dr chambers um any thoughts uh, uh i know you've got lots of experience uh, things we may need to touch on or maybe you want to emphasize I just, I think that several of the panelists have mentioned that we're all in COVID together and everyone is trying to figure out, you know, what COVID land is going to look like and how we're, you know, we all want, you know, wonderful applicants and, um, you know, in some ways this year is different. In some ways it's actually very similar. And so I say, you just put your best foot forward, you know, as you were anyway, be honest, we're all affected by COVID in our personal and professional lives. Um, you know, say I submitted this IRB and they have not gotten back to me due to COVID, say, you know, all of the things, um, put in your personal statement, again, try and find a program that aligns with your missions and values. Um, but remember, you know, we want a future too. We want to match our programs. We want, um, you know, we want to train you and we look forward to meeting you and having you um, in our programs. And we're, you know, you know, dismayed by the fact that we are, are forced to face COVID and all the realities that come with it. So um, please feel that you will find a home, you will match somewhere, you know, we're rooting for you. And if, if I can be of an assistance to you, please feel free to reach out to me. Right on, right on. Dr. Malexida. Um, I echo what Dr. Chambers said. I think this is just a really challenging year. There's a lot of uncertainty. I think the faculty and the program directors recognize the angst amongst the medical students, um, and we're doing our best to address it. Um, I would just encourage the students to really, um, you know, get mentorship and get guidance from your clerkship directors, your program directors, any faculty that's mentoring you. Um, because this is, you know, again, we're trying to figure this out together. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all about the medical students, and we want to make sure that um, you guys are successful in your endeavors. So, um, yeah, that's all I would add. I'll, and when we end here, uh, I'm going to talk to get some more insight here, but I want to share a couple things about the academy as we close out because of the great interest. Dr. Chang, a uh, comment or two as we close yes. out? Yes. So let, I'll let you all know that we, uh, we feel for this situation, and we realize that this is a, a, a different environment. And so there was a lot of questions about, you know, letters of recommendation. And so we're going to understand that you aren't always going to be able to get a letter of recommendation from every otolaryngologist. 
uh, I had a medical student come up to me and say, you know what, I had a great time and I have uh, a, a, a person I work with in family practice that would probably write me a great letter because we did a great, we worked and synergized together and I had a great time and learned a whole lot. I said, you know what, that could be actually more important and more impactful of a letter than a letter that you got from Mr. Well or Dr. Well-known otolaryngologist who writes the same letter for all his otolaryngology um, uh, applicants, but it's just, you know, he's, he or she may be well-known, but it's just the same letter. So don't feel free or please feel free to reach out beyond kind of the normal um, uh, confines that we used to, to establish. There was a, I was planning to go around the room, but there was a, I think, a, I don't know, provocative, but an important question that just came in, you know, it has to do with the, um, the, that time sensitivity response to the, the offers. You know, is there any consideration of otolaryngology to follow the footsteps of plastic surgery and urology in creating an interview release schedule um, so they don't have to be by their phones at all times? Is there any, who's that up to? Is that up to you guys? Opto, uh, uh, yeah. will uh, typically send out a recommendation for a window, an interview offer window. Um, and traditionally that has been sort of in that uh, mid-October to early, early November timeframe. So of course that's going to get all pushed uh, further into November this year. So we'll be sending out some communication with our program directors um, next week so that there is a window really more for the medical students so that they know, you know, if they haven't heard by the state, then, you know, um, that, that's the timeline for our um, program directors to send out interview offers. And whenever it actually is on the calendar, the idea that is there a better way than we're doing it to make sure people don't feel, if I understand correctly, just glued to their phone, they got to be on the thing, get, get on it, right? Is there a better way that we're not doing? Or is there something in the way of that? Um, my program, we, I know, I'm such a dork, but my program, we, I, I have committed ethically to never having more offers extended than we have interview slots available. Now, that doesn't mean that the day that you can come is the day that's, uh, is the, the slot that is available, but if we have five spots, I will only ever make five offers until those are, until those people say yes or no, um, and uh, I try to give at least 36 to 48 hours, and I even in ERAS send a message that says your invitation is about to expire. Oh. So um, I would, it's, I know it's difficult to keep up with, and it's anxiety provoking, and you're still doing clinical rotations. I love it, Mark's a nerd like me. Um, but you should check your ERAS registered email no less than twice a day while this uh, portion of, the, of your life is active. Uh, because missing and, and and your junk like your junk folder as a part of your check, uh, because it is just it would be heartbreaking to open an uh, an email that says you we have not heard from you in the past four days. We are so sorry. We must withdraw um, this invitation. Dr. Thorne, thank you, Dr. Alexander. Dr. Thorne. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the idea. You know, I'm also uh, really concerned for our students in terms of how tethered they uh, feel to their um, to their devices and phones. And and I've heard you know kind of horror stories of of uh, students who you know are are driving down the highway and their alert goes off and they feel they need to swerve off the road so they can check. Um, 
Uh, and so I, I would really love to see us, um, you know, move towards having a, a kind of standard date and time that we, um, uh, that we offer interviews across our specialty. Um, uh, I was uh, joking with our opto group earlier that, that this year we're, we're tilting at the windmill of trying to get this signaling program in so that our applicants can uh, reliably express their signals and, and get their, uh, the interviews at the programs they'd most be interested in. Uh, if we're successful there, then, then I would love to um, you know, work next year um, uh, to try to get us to get a standard kind of interview invite. I think that would be a great service to our students so that they can uh, enjoy their work of being a student um, uh, during this interview season and know that they'll have a set time uh, for when they'll get their interviews. Thank you, Dr. Thorne. Dr. Pletcher? Yes, um, I want to just put a plea out there to everyone. Do not be afraid to cancel interviews this year. Cancel them early. Don't cancel them the day before. But, you know, I think it's been put out there that, you know, with the, uh, no, since you don't need to travel to do interviews, since the timing is likely going to be different, that people could do a lot more interviews. Don't interview at 30 programs. It's not going to help you. We're all one community, and these are all your future colleagues, and we're all we all work together. Um, you know, I, I'm sure when you when people first start getting interview offers, of course you accept those. It's totally understandable and reasonable, and no program is going to hold a grudge um, if you say, you know, uh, you know, I really appreciate that, you know, the interview offer. Um, you know, the uh, I I accepted initially. I'm now overwhelmed with offers. Um, and I'm going to politely decline and give this opportunity to one of my future colleagues. You know, that to me is someone I will remember, whereas uh, for good reasons, not for bad reasons. So uh, please, you know, keep that in mind as we move forward uh, in, this pro in this process. I'd like to, to wrap up and, and uh, this, I, I, want, I want our attendees to hear this message and from, from my great uh, colleagues and uh, laryngologists and an opto that, uh, that shared this moment, I wanna say thank you. I'm gonna share my screen and see if I can get this right. Um, there's my lovely wife and here's our picture. So yeah, when Dr. Uh, Dr. Pletcher was saying, you know, we are, we are one. I mean, that is, our, that is our unifying theme for the American Academy. We are Otolaryngology United for Patient Care and I try to start every talk with this, you know, we are one. Um, and it really is our essence in whether you're, which part of the rainbow world you are, which part of this, is this laryngology? Is this a demographic? Is this where you are re geographically? I think of this when we all blend together. And I think that is really the future. This is the student site. I love the mortarboard there, a little old fashioned. We should get one with a little eye mirror, a head mirror on there. But www.entnet.org slash students. I think it's $25 to join as a member and it gets you onto the ENT Connect. Um, you know, you're the future, man. I mean, just just please come listen, engage, and uh, tell us what you think, make it better. Don't just eat the cake, help us bake the cake that we are making together. Um, it's my privilege to serve uh, Dr. President, Dwayne, our, our, uh, president Toilet, uh, Taylor, uh, who's our current president and then incoming uh, president-elect Dr. Bradford. This is my last, a uh, couple of my last legacy projects left over from my time. But I just wanna say thank you as we close out um, to all my folks. Thank you to our future otolaryngologists. Uh, it's a great field. Um, we're doing well uh, despite all these challenges and I know people are struggling, but the essence of what we do caring for people and how they communicate, how they live and eat and breathe and talk and hear and smell and listen and thrive in our world happens 
here with this group, this conversation. So I just want to say thank you. Appreciate it. Good night, guys. Take care. Thank you, all the attendees. <laughs>